Welcome to the Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. At the end of this past November, OpenAI launched ChatGPT. And since then, there's been a lot of discussion about what AI will mean for education. Will AI render teachers irrelevant? Should AI be banned in the classroom? Will homework ever be the same again? Often, though, discussions of these questions can feel very abstract and distant, as if AI and education is some problem off in the future. Today's guest, however, argues that it is anything but. Ethan Mollick argues that teachers should already be using AI to better their teaching, that we should already be using AI to accelerate student learning, and that we should already be thinking about the threat AI poses to traditional forms of schoolwork, such as the essay and the problem set. Ethan Mollick is an associate professor at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. He writes about AI on his Substack, One Useful Thing, and is one of the best people to follow on Twitter for AI insights and updates. Over the past year, he has co-written three papers on AI and education. New Modes of Learning Enabled by AI Chatbots, Three Methods and Assignments, Using AI to Implement Effective Teaching Strategies in Classrooms, Five Strategies, Including Prompts, and Assigning AI, Seven Approaches for Students with Prompts. Ethan Mollick, welcome to the report card. Happy to be here. Thank you. So to start off, Ethan, you're a professor at Wharton, and there you study innovation and entrepreneurship. We brought you on to talk about AI. Why are you so interested in AI? Uh, So as a professor, you get to do a lot of different things. So my core interest outside of entrepreneurship and innovation has been how do you teach these kind of things? So I've been thinking for a long time about how to use games. I run an organization at Wharton that builds games for teaching. How do we democratize access to business education? So I've been playing with AI a lot over the last decade plus on this. Uh, Worked with the MIT Media Lab with AI. And so it's a space I knew a lot about. And was kind of ready for when, uh, I don't think it was ready, but it was more ready than some for when the revolution happened back in November. So you've been using AI in your teaching, right? Like as this has unfolded, can you describe how this revolution has changed your teaching? I mean, what do you do differently? And from the student's perspective, what are they seeing that's different in your teaching now than maybe years past? Uh, everything is different. Um, so AI is now required in all my classes, 100%. The syllabus now literally requires students to do at least one impossible thing. So, I mean, Wharton's a pretty great school for launching startup companies who've done pretty well. People probably raised out of the intro classes at Wharton. I wish I could take full credit for it, but there's many other prof- amazing professors teaching probably like $2 billion in capital. So, like, uh, you know, We've done pretty well with this stuff, but now I'm actually, you know, we've now upped the demands, right? So they use AI for idea generation. They have to create something impossible, like create a working app if they can't code or create working websites or products. They have to interview AI people. There's some interesting research suggesting that you could get actual willingness to pay out of interviewing AI so there is some, you know, a really big change. And then, of course, there's change in assignments people turn in and there's changes in how I grade. So it's a pretty fundamental difference. So as an example, to catch our listeners' attention, what's the wildest thing you've had your students do with AI, the most impressive thing that you've seen in the past semester? Oh, I mean, that's tough. Um, And I also have to be a little cautious because of students. But let me just tell you about the first time I introduced AI to one of my classes, right? This was a couple days after ChatGPT came out. By the end of that class, one of the undergraduates in the class had by the end of that exact class period, uh, people stopped paying attention to me pretty quick. Somebody had used AI to completely uh, code a 
demo of their product, which was a kind of living picture frame that would detect when somebody was nearby and kind of wave to them, Harry Potter style. And uh, they had built a working demo of that by the end of the first class using libraries they'd never used before in Python. And I posted on Twitter and they had uh, contact from VC scouts by the end of the next day. So like that idea of like simplify that pipeline down from having an idea to executing it is pretty exciting. I asked for wild. That's pretty wild. Let me ask about student learning. So let me just separate this. I have concerns about students learning, which is different from what you might be able to produce now that you have chat GPT or some other AI help. Do you think your students learning is better or has been improved or is it just changed in kind as a result of introducing AI in your classes? So I think it's a really interesting question, and it's not an easy one. It's a complicated one. So, I mean, I think that it has improved, right, because I run experimental class that I can shoot from the hip, and, you know, engagement alone gets you somewhere, right? But l- there's a lot more details to this. So I'm going to give you the top-level view, but part of the intro- and a project-based class, having you be able to get further in a project is interesting, too, right? People can see more stuff than they did before. We're giving some stuff up as a result of that. But there's some deeper pieces. So for example, I expect people to use prompts that I've been giving them as tutors if they don't understand something. And so they actually use the AI to get explanations. Now, that has because I already found that they were doing that. People raise their hands less in class than they did before as a result of they'd rather ask AI than look ignorant for their classmates. So you have to kind of adapt to that. I think there's some real value, but again, the AI makes mistakes and can lie. That can be a problem. Another example of something I had people do is, you know, there's advantages to get a critique. And I can only critique things so many times as a professor, but every one of their assignments in their class now requires them to get critiques from famous entrepreneurs through history. So they're expected to get Steve Jobs' opinion, uh, a simulated Steve Jobs. Do I think it's actually Steve Jobs? No, but it lets us have a really interesting conversation with them about getting outside opinions and entrepreneurs tend to be overconfident. So this helps us break that overconfidence bubble by giving them different ideas. So it does create new modalities for teaching in many different ways that do have pedagogical impact. So I think that that's the important piece. So you've done a good bit of writing on, you know, how do we use this AI? What do we have to think about to use these tools productively? We have a lot of teachers that listen to this, a lot of ed policy folks. One concern a lot of those folks have is that, hey, AI is going to make a bunch of teachers lose their jobs. How do you respond to that kind of concern? I think education is the safest place, and not just because it's government, you know, the government control and the fact that we have long amounts of, you know, Wharton's been around for a long time, will continue to exist and certification, but also because AI, I think we have a broad stroke of what the future of AI is going to look like for schools. And in the short term, it's going to be incredibly disruptive. And I think that people are not ready enough for what's about to be happening in this world. But I do think in the long term, teachers have a huge role, right? There is going to be, we're going to be a flipped classroom world. We're going to be in a world where, in fact, our our initial papers were all focused on what teachers could get out of this and the benefits. So I think losing jobs is really not the big concern. There's value in classrooms, there's value in activities, there's value in human interaction. I think what teachers are going to do is going to shift. And some of that shift is going to be good. Some of it's going to be bad. A lot of it's going to be disruptive. So you're saying, hey, your jobs are going to have to change. Let's give a little bit of this background really quickly. Lots of people have heard of ChatGPT. Many of them know there's different versions. 3.5 came out, it seems like, years ago. It was like eight months ago, right? 4.0 is like 
what, four months old, but there's also Bing, there's Bard and Claude. Can you give us just a brief view into how much variety there is? And when you're talking about using AI in the classroom, are you talking about all these tools, a particular subset? Okay, so there's a lot to discuss here. If we think about AI, there is these sort of foundational large language models. Uh, the three big ones right now are OpenAI's GPT model, Anthropic's Claude model, and Google's Bard model, which is actually a name for a whole bunch of different AI models that they've been kind of branding together. Uh, Microsoft's Bing uses OpenAI's model. So those are the three big ones. Uh, and OpenAI has two versions, GPT 3.5, which is that free chat that we saw before, and GPT 4, which is the more advanced model. There's no doubt this stage that we're talking now that GPT 4 is the most advanced model out there. It's significantly better than GPT 3.5. For all the people who are like, ChatGPT can't solve my problems. It absolutely can. You probably haven't used GPT 4, right? There's huge increases. So basically, you have access to these models. The important thing to realize, first of all, is that these models are ubiquitous. So everybody on Earth in 169 countries has uh, access to GPT 4 via Microsoft Bing in creative mode which means that the most advanced AI model you can get outside of maybe 80 or 100 people who, in OpenAI who might be training the next model is available to everybody. You, best company in the world, you don't have better access. You know, the governments don't have better access. This is the same tool everybody has access to. So there is this ubiquitous tool, and this is that kind of foundational large language model. Right now, this happens through chatbots. There's lots of other ways of interacting with it. So if you look at something like Sal Khan's uh, Cat Academy, it's Conmigo, that uses GPT-4 as its base. So almost everything is based on these three core models, and that's what you kind of see in the world. Of them, GPT-4 is clearly the best. Anthropics, Claude, and GPT-3.5 are closely related. Google's BART is uh, inexplicably terrible right now for reasons that aren't 100% clear. If there was a total novice teacher who said, I I'm getting my feet wet, what do I do? Can you give us the first two steps? Absolutely. So, I mean, I've written a bunch of guides on how to do this, and we've got a video series. And a bunch of, so, you know, it's hard to sort of say verbally, go type something in. It, it's never going to sound that, that unawkward. But my suggestion to start would be to go to Microsoft Bing and go into chat mode. And then there's going to be a switch. You can pick between creative and precise and balanced mode. You're going to pick creative. The background will turn purple. Now you're talking mostly to GPT-4. And I would pick that one because chat, as good as it is, you have to pay for GPT-4 access. So this is the best way to get it. It's Microsoft Bing. You have to have an Edge browser. It's pretty easy to do. And then I would start with some questions. So the first thing I would be thinking about would be just starting a conversation. I am a teacher who specializes in this area. Give me some thoughts about how I could use AI to do an exercise. How can I communicate this to teachers? Literally asking your question. This is this prompting idea. People make this very hard. Now, if you want to, we have tons of prompts that we published that work really well that turn AI into a tutor or help you design homework or help you come up with quizzes. And th those will become more and more common in the future. But just having a conversation with this thing can be very useful. Bing also creates images. So you might want to say, create an illustration of this and see what happens. So it is an interactive experience. It isn't sort of a one-time thing. And prompting means something here. Can you just talk about what that skill of giving prompts look like and why new users need to think carefully about it? So prompt is really easy. Prompt is just whatever I type in. So to take a step back, all a large language model like ChatGPT does is try and figure out the next word or part of word called a token in a sentence. It's a fancy autocomplete. Now, 
that analogy isn't that helpful because it's such a fancy autocomplete that we can't quite explain why it's as good as it is at language. But that's all it's trying to do is predict the next word. So what you're doing with a prompt is you're giving it the material to start working from. So that prompt is usually a question. It could be a phrase. It could be a request. Anything that you want is a prompt. There is a lot of buzz around the idea of prompt crafting, of writing really good prompts to get the AI to do what you want. And there is indeed some art to that. So you can do some more advanced prompting techniques, like giving the AI examples makes you come up with better output. You know, you can refine your prompts to make it do what you want. The first time you type something in, you may not get what you want out of it. But I think there's a lot of emphasis on this idea of prompt crafting or prompt engineering, when in reality, 80% of the way to being a good prompter is just asking the AI questions. So you're literally going to get a box that'll say, you know, what do you want to do? And type in whatever you'd like to start a conversation. Imagine you're talking to a person and you'll get most of the way there with prompting. Okay. So there's been some hand-wringing about what AI is going to do to education. And often it's viewed as a threat, right? Like we run classrooms, we run schools in a typical way, and AI is going to change this. So I know threat, also opportunity, but let's just kind of get to this question about like, what's the change threat? So these are pretty new models. So do we have any sense of how much use there is in say high school or middle school, or is that still pretty much a black box? We don't have a huge amount of data, but all the data we have would suggest pretty high levels of ubiquity here. So I, I would expect that everyone's going to be using this. I think that every teacher has to expect that, you know, what I call the homework apocalypse is already happening, that people are going to be cheating. And even what cheating is doesn't mean the same thing anymore. So when I ask my students about use is asking it to provide an outline for you of a paper that you don't use, is that cheating? Asking it to read your material in the voice of a teacher and give you feedback, is that cheating? We'd probably like that kind of behavior. Uh, getting stuck on a paragraph and asking it to write it different ways, is that cheating? Giving instructions to make something, I, I assign my students a cheating assignment in class where they actually have to cheat with AI and they have to interact with it five or six times, is that cheating? Because they have to go deep into that interaction with the AI system. We don't know, but you should assume everyone is going to be using this and it solves every kind of problem. It doesn't do, do things perfectly. We can talk about hallucinations and errors and mistakes, but even now, for example, things that you didn't think it could do, it could do. So multimodal input is now available for some users in Bing. What that means is I can put pictures into the AI. So I can put a geometry problem in and it will figure out what that image is and solve the problem. It writes essays, it solves, you know, it does complex math. So I would assume your students are going to be universally cheating with this in one way or another. And I think we have to grapple with that because it's already happening. This fall is going to be full of it. Well, grappling with that is, I mean, there's a real equity problem here, right? So like the kid who's using it a lot, and let's say they're cheating or whatever, they're getting advantages from it. There's other kids who may be later adopters. You have them in the same class or high school, and it just seems like, well, there's going to be an unfair advantage to early adopters. What do you think is the responsibility of teachers in schools, some of which are going to say, you know, we're going to ban it. We're going to keep it at arm's length. I'm assuming you're going to say, no, you're not going to keep it at arm's length. But what is their responsibility as far as making sure that there's some kind of level playing field? 
So I think the equity question is kind of an interesting one because usually we talk about equity, we're talking about social economic status or some other divider, right? Here, because of the ubiquity of access and because you can access it from your phone or from a computer or from you know a library for free, the equity issue is much less significant in the, the sense that we usually are worried about it, right? There isn't a reason to suspect that poorer school districts are going to suffer as a result of this. In fact, it can be a great leveler. I think one of the most exciting things about this is we have an AI system that everybody in Uganda and India and everywhere in the US and Latin America has access to that is incredibly powerful as a tutor and advisor. And, you know, that's incredibly exciting. We're getting incredibly close to one-on-one tutoring and, you know, Bloom's classic kind of huge impact on students of having a one-on-one tutor, which is something we could talk more about. So I think equity means something a little bit different here, but it does, there is an experience curve. I think that experience curve is pretty short. And one thing you could do is teach people to use AI if you wanted to. That certainly is a possibility. Banning it is just not an option. It's not possible. So it's not something you should even be thinking about. And so I think leveling the playing field is something that to think about, but it's not actually that big a deal because these systems are also pretty intuitive. 90% of what people do when they cheat is just paste the assignment in and read the results. So the question is, do you want to get the more sophisticated than that? That's a decision you have to make. So I wouldn't say I'm a Luddite, but I'm Luddite curious, Ethan. So when I have watched what's happened during the pandemic, I have some serious concerns with tech and schooling. So let me lay this out. This is non-AI related, but I want to get your take on it. I'm mostly concerned about when technology and computing and screens are applied poorly. And the example that I often bring up is, you know, the number of schools that were one-to-one in terms of devices to students before the pandemic was definitely less than 60%. I would say that the actual usage was even lower than that percentage suggests. 40% for elementary, north of 90% today. And there's good reasons for that. We had a pandemic. We bought a bajillion devices and got them out quickly to handle that pandemic instructional challenge. But not only did the pandemic make so many schools one-to-one, they also had teachers just adopting it on the fly, figuring out how to use it. I'm worried that most of that increase is not well-done technology adoption, but it's sort of rapid. And because so many schools had to adapt to schooling through a computer for most kids, or at least a huge subset, that we're going to have a lot of problems with how these systems were brought on board. Do you share that concern? Again, not in the AI context, but just, wow, we moved this rapid shift and learning to use these systems well, as opposed to just having them and using them could introduce a lot of problems. Uh, So, I mean, there's a few things here. One is there's a reason when we started putting out how to use AI documents that we focused on teachers rather than students. So I think some of this is a little bit misplaced that we're focusing solely on students using this. So assume your students are going to use it. How do we guide that, right? So it's a little different than the pandemic where we had to suggest use. The second is that unlike the pandemic, AI can make teachers' lives easier. So the tools that are available here will help you do better teaching. You can generate examples and analogies. You can generate homework assignments. Obviously, it's some, you know, grading and feedback has some really interesting possibilities. There are ways of making life easier for teachers. Training teachers becomes easier in this project. I'm involved in with that. So it's not necessarily aimed at the same way at here is an adjustment you have to make if you use technology badly. You can decide 
then you want to adopt this slowly. You can decide you want to play with this as an instructor, but that doesn't change the fact your students are going to be using it. So I think that this is a much more broad-based technology. And I think some of the mistake is viewing this as something that's happening to us as educators, which it is, right? We, no one asked for this. And OpenAI did not you know, have an education white paper that came out. And the first people to get hit by AI were instructors, right? Because the first people to figure stuff out were students who were cheating. And at first they cheated really badly and everything said, as a large language model, I can't do your homework for you. And people would turn that in. That's not what's going to be happening in the future. So I think we need to take some agency and control over what's going on here and decide how we want to use this. This is an emergency the way a pandemic was. We have to adjust to it. But we have some more options about getting this right that we can engage in. And teachers have more control, instructors have more control, administrators have more control. They don't have control of whether the students are using it, but they do have some control over how they want to place this in the classroom and think about its use. Yeah, I think it's an interesting parallel because just like there wasn't some memorandum of understanding drafted by the pandemic before it came in and forced us all to change, I think that there's a way that a lot of schools and teachers can think, well, you know, there isn't necessarily this sort of exogenous forced adoption that we have with AI, we can kind of control how it comes in. And I think from reading your work, what a lot of teachers should realize is actually you may not have much control over this. So the adjustment must be faster than you would like. Open AI, chat GPT, no MOU here where you can kind of be controlling how this is used. So the force or the rapidity with which teachers need to change isn't really in their control. Am I on to the right conclusion here or am I off base? So just take a half step back, right? GBT ironically means something else for people who study innovation, which is general purpose technology, right? These are these rare generational changes. The last one was probably internet and computer before that electricity, before that steam. Usually they take a long time to roll out. This is very fast, but they affect every part of culture and work. So as opposed to the pandemic, which was a thing we had to improvise around and we knew our solutions were bad. You could find good things in them, but no one thought that going remote the way that people went remote was the right way to work. It was the best thing we could do. GPT is going to have some pandemic-like effects. Your students are going to be cheating or using AI for help. That is happening to you, right? But there are other things that are much more like you're now everyone is an ed tech designer. So I, I was having this amazing time just you know, taking these AI tools and saying, okay, give me 12 ways to explain entropy to a fifth grader. And it did great jobs with analogies and, you know, make a video game about it. It created a video game that explained entropy and you could increase or decrease the entropy of a system. And I was able to run the video game and play it. I mean, there are tools that are available to you that are incredibly exciting as a teacher, as an educator, an administrator that put you in the center. And as opposed to having to go into vendors and have them create a math program that creates, you know, material for you, you can do that yourself. So there is choices that we get to make too. So a lot is happening all at once. And we kind of have to separate some of those strands about what this means for administrators. I mean, look, it, it will do all of your forms for you much better than you could do your forms. It's going to do your performance reviews better than you could do performance reviews. What does that mean? How do we think about that? It, there's a lot of implications. So that's part of why this conversation is hard. We have to unpack a lot of stuff. So, you know, I think a lot of people will view the onset of these technologies in the context of the way we've been doing things. And so that is the assumption. Well, this is how things have been done. And AI is going to come in and it's going to help people cheat. But it's really going to take some major revolution in, and, and, as you said earlier, major disruption to what we have done to accommodate what it can do. 
And that may be the jump from thinking, well, this is a way that students are going to cheat to, well, we have to adapt to these new tools so that students will use them not to cheat, but to be productive in the new world that we're going to have now that AI is here. They're going to do both things. They're going to cheat and they're going to learn and they're going to use it to challenge you and they're going to use it as a teammate on class projects and they're going to use it as a tutor. And I mean, all of this is happening at once. It's it's what's hard to grasp about this, right? This is not a one-time thing. This is not a simple problem. So you have to break it down to pieces. So every way we do homework is threatened. How do we feel about that? What do we want to do as a result? The ability of us to do more stuff in classrooms is now you know higher than before. What do we feel about that? The ability to remove busy work from teachers is higher. How do we feel about that? There's a lot of questions here that need to be unpacked. And I don't think it helps to think of it as one thing as much as to think about what happens when we get electricity in the classroom or internet in the classroom. Cheating is possible, but I also could download lesson plans and I also could have students watch games and I could have them watch the YouTube video. This is that kind of thing, but it's happening all now as opposed to waiting 20 years for a deferral and, and having a chance to breathe. In your Substack, one useful thing, and we'll link to this in the show notes, you have a piece called The Homework Apocalypse, which gets at a lot of this. What do you mean there? What's the homework apocalypse? So homework is hated but useful. And we know that people who do homework retain more information, do better on tests. One of the trends that's been really interesting, there's a paper on this from a college looking at this uh, that I linked to there, has been that the percentage of people who do homework who benefit from it has been dropping, and you'll never guess the reason. Obviously, people are copying from the internet, right? You know, So cheating has been there for a long time. Homework is still valuable, but it's easier and easier to find answers uh, and to, you know, to get help on it. The thing with AI is it's going to accelerate that process a hundredfold. There's a whole bunch of tools that we use as blunt tools in learning, like essays. We cite a lot of essays. Now, when you actually look at the pedagogical research on essays, it's remarkably thin. So we pile a lot on essays. Essays are supposed to teach you how to think and organize information, act as assessment. And, and we haven't had to question that very much because for a few centuries, we've been assigned, or, or more, if you look back, there's Sumerian tablets, right? For you know, millennia, we have been assigning people writing tasks and assuming a lot of magic stuff happens when people do writing. And what happens with AI is very different. AI is a companion for writing. There's a button in my Google Docs that'll be coming to everybody's Google Docs and into everybody's Microsoft Office that lets me create an entire essay with the push of a button. So what does that mean for the essay? What does that mean for that assignment? We have to start actually thinking about what we hoped essays would accomplish and breaking that down and deciding what's okay, what isn't about that. Other kinds of homework too, right? Readings. I can put my entire book into Claude, which takes 100,000 tokens or 75,000 characters worth of writing, and ask a question about my book, and it does a really good job. Identify all the metaphors. That's something an AI shouldn't be able to do. Metaphors are hard to identify even, in, you know, but it lists all the metaphors in my book. Tell me about an argument I made. I mean, this is a very different way of handling readings than we did before, let alone just problem sets. You could throw in, you know, problem sets. I mean, this is getting 99th percentile of the GRE verbal, 97th percent of GRE math. It's going to solve every problem that you have. So the homework apocalypse is that whether you're using this for cheating or advice, you can't have no opinion on what it means to have AI outside of class. And AI is undetectable. So you can't ban it because if you ban it, the students who are cheating are just going to cheat in a way you can never accuse them of. And the students who aren't cheating are going to be punished for not learning AI. And students are going to use this to advantage. And wouldn't you say just from the history of what we've seen on the, the internet and so forth, and knowing what we know about the age and status of 
the teaching core versus the student core, that high school students are going to be earlier adopters and faster at this than teachers? I mean, isn't it on to teachers to be able to keep up with the change that students are going to adopt a little faster? I mean, yes, that's the, that's the apocalypse. The students will all use this ubiquitously. I mean, it's not hard to use. Like, this is not, you know, log on to the dark web and get a tour browser. And like, this is like, you literally go to, you know, the second biggest search engine in the world or the biggest, big Bart has this too. And you click, talk to the AI and you type in your homework assignment and it will give you the answer. I mean, this is not magical, right? This is not hard. This is not an adoption process. This is the easiest thing in the world. And so of course they're going to adopt it. And so that's done. That's already decided. I don't accept essays in my classes anymore that aren't perfectly written, because why would I? They're going to use AI anyway. So that promise is done. That horse is out of the barn. The cat is out of the bag. There are horses and cats everywhere. I mean, this is over. So our stopgap measures of turn it in or you know GPT-0, those don't work. This is process is over. That's the apocalypse, right? There is no alternative anymore to the fact that our students are using AI. So you've done some work with your co-author, Lilach Malik, and you have a recent paper, Assigning AI, Seven Approaches for Students About Prompts. Tell us a little bit about the idea behind that paper. You're sort of, I assume, trying to fill this gap that you're talking that teachers need to grapple with and grapple with quickly. So we have a series of three papers and they get closer and closer to the sort of third rail. So the first one was about using AI errors to help you, right? So we would actually assign students the role of a teacher essentially and have them teach the AI. And because the AI makes mistakes, you hold them accountable for the content and the mistakes that they make. And then you have this kind of really nice kind of transfer moment. What's happened in the past uh, few months has been AI has gotten so good, it makes many less obvious mistakes, making that a little bit harder as a strategy. The second strategic approach was about giving teachers tools. And that's we have a paper on that. And that's quite useful. You want to interleave two ideas. You want to do distributed practice, analogies, all the stuff that we know is really good pedagogically that's hard for teachers to do because they don't have the time. They're too busy. The textbooks don't let them do it. AI will do those things, personalized instruction. So that was sort of the second piece. And this third piece that you talked about is really trying to grasp the third rail of like, what happens if we assign AI to students? And there's some problems with that, right? AI lies. It makes stuff up. It could it hallucinates. That's not great, right? It, uh, there are ethical concerns about using it, about what it means to use it, about how it's trained that we might be concerned about. So there's reasons to be worried about AI. At the same time, it's here. So we have all these strategies we laid out. Now, the billion-dollar strategy that no one's fully cracked yet, but we have some attempts at, is this idea of tutoring, right? What if we assign the AI directly to t- teach students? It's pretty good, but it still makes mistakes. But there are other uses. You can assign AI as a critic to read over your paper and give you feedback. You can have AI experts as a teammate. So all my students generate ideas with AI help now. And that, that can be very useful. You can have AI as a, you know quiz you, a, a, give you assessments of what you know and don't know. There are all these things that we know are pedagogically sound that teachers would do if they had time, if they were in a you know, one-on-five classroom that you could now do by assigning AI to students. And I think that that's incredibly exciting. And it's not hard, right? We give people in that paper the prompts to use. And you just literally give students, paste this in, or even send them a link to it, and then have them work with it. So there is some real power here for teachers. This is not something that is just being done to you, like I said. It's something you can do with your students. Yeah, the assigning AI paper is particularly useful to teachers, those listening. I encourage you to read it. You have these seven uses, mentor, tutor, coach, teammate, student, simulator, and tool. 
I don't want to go through all those uses. You wrote the paper. People can go read it. But of these uses, what would you say is the most important for teachers to kind of grapple with and use now in the short run? Okay. So I think that assigning it as a tool is probably a minimal thing to do, right? Acknowledging AI use is happening. And so the tool teammate uses are both kind of good ones for that because it basically has people integrate AI into kind of what they're doing. I think the thing that teachers should be thinking about hard is that tutor role. It's not there yet, but it's happening very quickly. If you haven't signed up for and just played with Khan Academy's Conmigo, I would recommend it. Uh, Again, not there yet, but getting very close to this kind of direct instruction piece. And once you do that, once we have direct instruction, we know lectures in class are not a particularly effective way of teaching. We've done that for a long time, but sometimes that's the only way we get information across. We can finally complete that flipped classroom experience where instead of assigning people a textbook reading, you assign them to learn about a topic. The tutor teaches them the topic. And then they come to class and you can do the activities, exercises, all of the good stuff that we know is really useful and where teachers can serve a really useful role and where being together is incredibly useful. Uh, And I think that that's exciting. That's not far away. And we had Saul Khan on to talk about Conmigo. Very engaging and interesting. But you keep saying, well, it's not quite there yet. Can you just extrapolate, like, what are the pain points with Conmigo in particular, but also these tutoring applications? And what is the thing that they need to fix? And how long might we expect it to take to fix them? So GPT-4, which this is based on, is a general purpose language model. So you need to kind of tune it for teaching. And there's a few things that are clear problems, right? One is that there's not a lot of memory on these things. So if you use them for a while, they start to kind of drift in direction. So what you want for instruction is you want to have a pretty good set of memory of where students are, where they're going, a plan for the future. You can improvise some of that now, but it's not solid enough that I would feel like this could pick up where it left off and keep teaching a student and keep them on course if the student tries to misdirect them. So there's some of those kind of pieces. There's some kind of core knowing a student, knowing where they're frustrated. I mean, there's some pretty amazing empathy levels from these AIs. In fact, GPT-4 beats doctors in written empathy of responses, according to a recent JAMA paper. So I mean, there's some exciting, you know, there is stuff happening there. But this idea of kind of connective tissue between lessons of knowing where you're going and having sort of an advanced plan to get there, of anticipating a student's needs that are so important for classroom instruction are kind of missing here. And then, of course, there's the hallucination. There's the fact that it does get stuff wrong. And because it's eager to please, it's easy to for students to mess with in a way that classroom management, it's not good at. So there's a bunch of these kind of busy pieces missing. If you go to it with the idea that I want to learn, it's a very powerful tool. If you go to it with anything other than I really want to learn, it's very easy to distract it. And so that's a kind of a big missing piece. The power of ChatGPT and these other large language models is rapidly increasing. So for instance, we had 3.5 back you know, in late fall. We have 4.0 now. How much change, what's the magnitude of change that we should expect with the next iteration? Let's say it happens in another four months. Do you think it's going to remake these things again? Or do you think that we've sort of seen the opportunities and the challenges that we're up against so we can already kind of see what these GPTs are going to actually be used for as a general purpose technology? So, I mean... We don't know. There's four scenarios for the future, right? I think too many teachers are counting on scenario one, which is nothing changes from now. Sort of the model you're saying like, ah, it's roughly what this is going to be. I don't think that that's a reasonable bet. I don't think there's any reason to suspect the technology is strong as 
everything squeezed out of it yet by any stretch, right? Then there's a lot of stuff in the news about what I'd call scenario four, the AI apocalypse, right? Uh, the AI wakes up and becomes a machine god and tells us what to do or launches nuclear weapons or saves us. I'm glad people are worried about that in government. I'm glad people worry about large organizations. I think it's an important concern. But I also think there's too much weight on that. The most likely scenarios in the short term are either this keeps growing linearly. So GPT-4, 5 comes out or tweaks to GPT-4 that are a little bit better, but a little bit better when you're already rated the 90th percentile can be a big deal. Or it keeps growing exponentially, which it has been, in which case this is going to be better than 99% of writers in a year or two. And I think we have to prepare for a world where that's happening. That's not easy to do. Because it's shifting the nature of education. What do we teach people? Uh, you know, I, I think a lot of people are familiar with the shock that happened when calculators were introduced into schools in the 70s. And there was a real big fight over, does this get embraced? Does this not? And reconfigured how math was taught in a major way. That at least had a decade or two, and the calculators were initially expensive to figure that out. That's going to happen in every field right now. Every field is going, every subject that we teach is going to be affected differently. Uh, subjects that seemed solidly professional before, like coding, you don't code anymore the way you coded before. AI writes code for you. I can't code in Python. I've written 14 Python programs in the last couple of weeks. AI will do that. On the other hand, weirdly, things like English that maybe had felt less useful to some students before as much as I love and, res and respect the humanities and think they should be taught, suddenly knowing the cultural patrimony of humanity turns out to be really useful because you get the AI to do amazing things if you know how to prompt it in different styles, different approaches, and know how to create an argument. So I think it's going to reconfigure a lot of how we're thinking about stuff. I don't think we should be thinking for the world to be stable. It's going to be changing rapidly, and we need to get our hands on the pulse of that rapid change pretty fast. Ethan, how do we apply this in a federalist education system, right? We have a very, very multi-tiered level. The U.S. Department of Education is not going to get chat GPT down to the classroom, right? Districts are going to do this at different phases. But districts have a lot of responsibility here as far as making sure that this is kind of like pushed down, that it's sensibly done, that teachers and that, you know, building level administrators are pushing this out. As far as sort of the responsibility of administrators and district administrators, what advice would you have on smoothing the delivery of these both challenges and opportunities? So one of the things I like to emphasize about AI is nobody knows nothing. At this point, like these were invented in the world. There are papers still coming out about like, what does it know? How do you ask it questions? We literally don't know. There's no handbook, right? I mean, I, I like to think that I'm as close to the ground as anyone in this, and I'm we're still experimenting, making stuff up, right, in classes. So nobody knows anything. So I think the first thing is to avoid the temptation that there's a consultant out there who will solve your problems for you. Or there's a training course that's pre-built that's perfect for it. There just isn't. We don't know these things. Like, I speak to OpenAI and Microsoft. Like, people are working on it. Like, people are thinking about this stuff, but we don't have the answers to these things. So there is a degree to which enabling conversation in the way that probably happened inside a lot of districts when COVID happened of like, how do we share best practices? How do we share prompts that work? How do we get teachers who are the front line of this to be able to communicate to each other and to administrators rather than this being top down? I think there's an advantage to the federalist system here of some de democratization of like approaches. There's no reason to suspect that there's anybody who knows more than a, you know, eighth grade science teacher sitting in a, in a room right now in Peoria or, you know, or Chicago, or anywhere else that might know the answers to this kind of question. So we have to think about how we open this up to having a conversation, because there is no official answer. There's no ed tech product you can buy. You know, there's nothing you can adopt. This is just something that's already happening. So I think we do need to think about that kind of piece about how do we start an open dialogue? 
How do we create ways of teachers sharing prompts with each other within buildings, within districts? Uh, how do we start having a conversation about what's working and what isn't? And also, how do we kill rumors? There's so much rumors about how these things operate that aren't real. Um, you know, people use GPT to check whether or not other work was done by GPT. So they'll ask, was this created by AI? AI can't do that. It'll make up an answer confidently that may accuse a student. We need to be able to share information more rapidly. And that's where I think the COVID example in some ways is most useful. How do we get tips out quickly? We can adapt. We've adapted before to a much worse situation, which was COVID. There's a lot of upside to AI. We need to think about how to embrace that. All right. Ethan, we do a section on the report card called Grade It. Are you ready? Let's do it. Venture capital in the startup world. A solid C, with some, uh, mostly because the curve is very distributed. Lots of A's, lots of F's. Give me a little bit more explanation on that for folks who aren't as familiar with the startup world. Oh, so startups are amazing. Um, they are. I absolutely think everyone should be thinking about startups. I was thinking about venture capitalists who are a very distributed group who seem to have a lot of confidence in their ability to pick what kind of companies to invest in, when in reality we know VCs are actually not that insightful, but uh, have uh, a lot of luck involved. As for startups, as somebody who teaches entrepreneurship, was an entrepreneur, uh, does ed tech stuff, I think that is the path for the future. And at least being entrepreneurial is how we're going to survive these AI changes. AI doomerism. Uh, yeah, this is like a great love. Um, so I would say A, because I think we need to be aware that it's happening. F, because I think it gives us a world in which there's only one right answer, which is, does it kill us all or not? And there's a lot more possibilities in the world than that. Business schools. I'm going to give us an A, um, both because they pay my paycheck, but also because learning business matters. We know that small amounts of business education transform lives. Uh, I think it needs to be democratized. That's been my mission. You shouldn't have to come to Wharton to get a good business education. You should be able to get it everywhere. And I wish we were integrating it more into curricula. So for a while on Twitter, you were known for posting interesting findings from papers. So this question is on the quality of the average paper abstract. Ooh, uh, a solid F. We have too many audiences to write them for it. We can't make them seem exciting or won't get published. Uh, we can't talk about implications. All the stuff that people care about has to be hidden throughout the paper. Abstracts for managers and teachers would be great. What makes an abstract good? An abstract is good when it talks about why this thing is important, clearly what you found and what the implications of that are for people, not just for academics. Crowdfunding. A for reward-based crowdfunding. That was my old research. It's super empowering. That's like Kickstarter. It's a great way to build communities. It's a really good way for people to get access to money who couldn't get it before. Equity-based crowdfunding, where people take a piece of your company, that's an F because it's a pretty scammy way right now compared to other ways of raising money. Gamification and education. Totally an A if it's done well, an F the way it's always been done. So you can't just slap game elements uh, onto a boring lesson and call it a game. That's what we call chocolate-covered broccoli. But well-designed games can do a huge amount for learning. Current AI policy. Let's just pick the U.S. U.S. AI policy. I'll call it a C. The laissez-faire nature of it has been pretty good for letting a lot of uh, thousand flowers bloom. But now we're in trouble with not having a policy and possibly co policy capture from the companies that want to control this. And a lack of clarity is also getting in the way. So is it legal to use? When is it legal to use? I think we need to start having actual rules as opposed to no rules at some point soon. The importance of AI 
for developing economies. Oh, solid A. The idea that everybody in, you know, in any country and, you know, in 169 countries of the world can now write in perfect English, write code, create websites. It takes you 30 minutes to build an entire working website. Incredible. I mean, I think about cell phones and how countries that didn't have good landlines actually got a big advance because they were able to leap right to mobile phones. The same thing is going to happen with AI. Last one. As of this day, July 2023, Twitter. Oh, a sadly decreasing D. Uh, I love Twitter. I have a lot of passion for it. I think that both because of community changes, but also really subtle changes in how it operates, uh, it is in danger of collapsing, which is a sad thing. It's a community I've used for 12 years at this point, but I think there's a definite feeling that this could be the moment it starts to die. All right. That's a wrap for Graded. Thanks for playing. Several months back, you had another paper using AI to implement effective teaching strategies in classrooms, five strategies, including prompts, also with Lalek Malik. What's the idea behind that paper? So that, that was the one we mentioned earlier is aimed at, at instructors. So it gives you pedagogically sound things you could do. So you want to create a quiz, it helps you create quizzes. You want to create an in-class activity, it helps you create in-class activities. So it, it sort of serves as a storehouse for knowledge for teachers. It helps them implement pedagogically sound ideas, like how do I interleave topics? What's the connection between the Civil War and the Enlightenment. And you can ask the AI, and we give prompts on this that will help you create lessons that tie things together, create all of these sort of nice pedagogical tools that we know work pretty well in the real world. There's one in here I want to draw on as an example. You talk about using AI to develop low stakes tests. There's some particular advantages to that. And a lot of teachers don't like tests. You know, there's a little assessment aversion. Can you just briefly talk about how AI can be used to develop low-stake tests, and why that might be pedagogically important. So low-stakes tests are sadly kind of miraculous for teaching. They're one of the best studied things that we know actually works. And that doesn't mean assessment, right? Assessment is one piece of tests, but that's not actually the main thing to worry about. That's why they're called low stakes, right? They don't have to be high grade effects. They're not midterms. But it turns out doing low stakes testing has been linked to all sorts of useful outcomes, right? So it helps you recall information about the test about topics related to tests. It primes you for learning more in the future. It helps expose gaps in your knowledge. It it really is a Swiss army knife for pedagogy, as annoying as it is. I wish it was something fun that turned out to be really useful, but low stakes testing is useful. We should do more of it. Uh, That might be little pop quizzes or little discussions or, you know, an exercise. I do exercises between classes that people have to answer, uh, like a poll style question. And generating these can be kind of hard unless they're in a textbook or something similar. And the AI is actually quite good at generating really good low stakes test questions. It'll generate an answer key for you. It'll do good answers that are built properly. So it turns out there's some art to multiple choice questions about not offering a all of the above or none of the above option about having the answers be maximally different from each other. And the AI does a good job of setting those things up. So if you want to implement quizzes, this can be a useful tool for that. And the interesting thing here is that the AI can enable you to do this. But again, it's less about getting the kid to complete the assessment so you know where they are and more about this is a way to develop those assessments, which enables kids to actually retain and understand and sort of go through the reps of understanding. And that's where the productive capacity is, less so how we usually think about tests as far as gauging students. Absolutely. Like it does play a role. And, you know, we, I don't want to get into a grading debate, uh, but the research is super clear that low stakes testing is very valuable in multiple ways that have nothing to do with assessment. 
And so nobody likes that this is the right thing to do. Uh, it feels weird and teachers, students don't like it. But if you want to maximize learning, low stakes testing is extremely valuable. Okay, so anybody who's made it this far knows that Ethan Mollick thinks that AI is going to be part and parcel of classroom practice this year, not in five to 10 years. But in terms of how teachers are using AI, what are your vague hopes five years down the line? I think the world is changing very fast, right? And I think that we have our most durable generation of teachers ever. I mean, we adjusted to COVID. Uh, we adjusted to a rapidly changing world with lots of different, you know, uh, disruption happening. Social media, everything else has all been happening in a very short period of time. I think that this is, in some ways, the culmination of a lot of the disruption. Right? It's, it touches everything as opposed to one or two things at a time. But I also think it creates tremendous opportunities. It shakes the board up in interesting ways. The idea that that a lot of the barriers that we had of access. You were talking earlier about how you know when the pandemic started, many classrooms didn't have computers. This is not that same kind of problem. Equitable access is kind of built into this in a large extent. It's a tool that wants to help you, which is exciting. It's an opportunity to educate in a new way. I built tons of Coursera and other MOOC courses, and they were always very limited. Now we have a tutor that can help you one-on-one. So I really hope that in five years, we start to see some of that dream come true, where some of the burden of teaching is moved to one-on-one tutoring. And a lot of what happens in classrooms is about achieving aha moments, having exercises and experiences, working with students to put things into place that teachers get a lot of their administrative burden and administrators get a lot of their administrative burden removed. If you're not already using this to do some of your administrative work, I'd be very surprised. Um, I find a lot of people are, they're just doing it secretly. So I think we could, there is a better world out there. We just need to steer for it. But I think there's going to be disruption in the next four years. So five years, I think it looks a lot rosier than the next couple of years, where I think people are going to be adjusting very quickly to a lot of change. So last question, Ethan, in the interim, and you just alluded to the stigma of using AI, and there is some stigma about it. How do you think that educators need to think about the stigma associated with using AI for their own work or for students' work? So I, I think that there's less stigma or the stigma is going to go away. I think the real issue is what AI is good at is human stuff, right? And that that's weird. Computers are not supposed to be good at human stuff. They're supposed to be good at computer stuff. But it's really good at writing a very nice letter. If you want to write a nice letter to a parent, it will write a nice letter for a parent. If you want to write a, if you want to give a speech that is, you know, full of empathy about a problem that's happening in the classroom, it will write that speech for you. That's the uncomfortable bit. It does a better review of your students, of your teacher's performance than you could write. So the issue is if I hide that use, you don't know I'm being insincere and the AI is doing the work. And it's a challenge. I think about just the core thing that I do often is I have to write letters of recommendation. Many teachers have to do this. And that takes a lot of time. It's a hard thing to do. It takes work. I have to read the resume, talk to think about the student. And it, you know, and that work is part of the process. The idea that they get a letter from me indicates that I set my time on fire on purpose to show that this student mattered something. Now, if I just paste in the student's name, their resume, the job they're applying for, and a sentence saying, they did good in my class, I like their project, into AI, I will get out a much better letter than I would do if I spent an hour doing work in three seconds. Now, the paradox for me is I'm not doing that yet. I'm sending the bad letter, right, that is the letter that I personally wrote. But if I sent them the good letter the AI wrote, they're probably going to get the job more. What does that mean? And I think we're all going to be facing those kind of problems of things that were meaningful when they were done by hand that were done personally, are are they meaningful when done by AI? I don't know the answer. Thanks for listening to The Report Card with Nat Malkus, and special thanks to our guest, Ethan Malik.
We'll include a link to using AI to implement effective teaching strategies in classrooms, assigning AI, and the homework apocalypse, as well as some of Ethan's other work in the show notes. Remember, you can subscribe to the report card on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download podcasts. And while you're there, take a moment and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. Send us comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at aei.org. That's all for this episode. I'm Nat Malcolm.